There has been much discussion and arguments down through the centuries on man's ability after the fall. We go back to the fathers of the early church. They declare man's ability. The Lord Jesus declared man's ability. The book of Revelation closes, as we've read, with man's ability to decide what is going to result from all that God is seeking to bless man in. And so it has been so tragic that complications have come in with various theological systems to blot out the responsibility. We mentioned that we can never live contradictory lives. We can never decide a wrong course of life without, first of all, complicating our minds. We can never live, I'm going to do this, I know I'm wrong, I'm going to do it, I know I'm wrong. This is not possible in personality. We've either got to uh, see truth and aim for it, or we've got to decide our lives and reduce truth. And so you can see there's been a great motivation uh, toward excuse. And there's no conceivable excuse greater than inability. If I can't obey God, then don't blame me for not obeying God. So here we have to discover and uh, evaluate uh, the scriptural position. We can't go to the evolutionist who has influenced psychology and philosophy unthinkably. They deny man's free will and responsibility. They deny that man is unique. They say man is simply a matter of causation, just like the preachers around are are uh, made to act by instinct. And it was a very sad day. Apparently around 1890, we have the rise of the psychological laboratories. And some of our godly colleges that had stood for the freedom of the will began to abandon it. We put everything else in the laboratory. Let's put man there. We can figure out, too, why man actually does. And so here you have the great professed accomplishments of our highly educated psychologists, so-called, who are, who are reasoning in a circle, the wisdom of words, Paul calls it. They don't have a true perspective, a true evaluation of things from God's viewpoint. And we know the only way we get the evaluation of God's viewpoint is through the precious word of God as has been revealed to us by the great exertions we've talked about. So it becomes vital and important, does it not, that we try to evaluate this, this matter and uh, indeed, a very sad discussion developed uh, in Augustine's day. Uh, we had a few outlines before us in an early lecture. We didn't uh, remark upon this situation, uh, which is also a result of philosophical development, because Augustine was a very vigorous personality. He was what you would call an open, defiant sinner. He was a school teacher, well-educated, and had lived a a depraved life in his own personal uh, approach to values. His dear mother was so afflicted with this and wrote him uh, such letters. And then in uh, middle life, really, uh, he met some uh, uh, leaders who were godly people, Bishop Ambrose of Rome, for example, and others influenced him to reconsider the matter of Christianity. And there's no doubt that he had a real genuine conversion in his dynamic personality. And uh, he went to North Africa where he uh, exerted his long influence and, and his dynamic mind and expressiveness began to exert leadership. And soon uh, he became a recognized leader among the Western Church, uh, the Roman Church. And uh, that division had uh, taken place previously. Uh, the Eastern and Greek uh, Church uh, was called the Eastern Church, of course. And the Eastern Church did not partake of these great struggles, it seems, that the Western Church did. I have a large book on the history of the Eastern Church. I haven't had time to look at it. It's 150 years old, possibly. doesn't even list Augustine in the index, you see. His life was not that important, apparently, to index it very much. But in the Western Church, he becomes a very important influence. And here we have the conflict going on between Augustine and Pelagius, which you have I surely heard about. So here we have somewhere around 400. Now, Augustine had this philosophical and speculative background, 
And this brought, was he brought into his conclusions. However, the beginning of his uh, uh, ministry, he did not have these extremes and was rather moderate in his concepts of free will. Then we have the controversy of Pelagius versus Augustine. The first thing we say here, we have two opposite personalities. Augustine is a Peter, for example, a dynamic, energetic, very quick to talk, very quick to, to speak, and uh, very explosive in expression. Pelagius is more of a reserved monk uh, from England who never had these great uh, conflicts that Augustine had had. Uh, he had conflicts, but not of the dynamic, expressive, uh, climactic nature. And so Pelagius uh, goes through Europe uh, lecturing on obeying Christ and, and uh, said it was uh, all you need to do is to make up your mind that you're going to do this. And uh, these two personalities come in clash with each other and, and as is quite often when you have two opposite extremes coming together, they bounce back to greater extremes. And it is quite common that the successors of leaders go into greater extremes than the leaders that they're professing to follow. And so here you have a dynamic approach here between these two individuals. And, and here it appears that Augustine uh, assumes his position of inability along with sovereignty, divine sovereignty. So there's two main ideas that come out of Augustine's life. Total inability, man can't obey God under any circumstances. And uh, along with this, of course, he has to have absolute sovereignty and man can't be reasoned with. Uh, God, if he's going to be saved, God has to give him birth. And so you can have whole theological systems that uh, are based on this idea. And uh, the reformers went back to Augustine. Uh, Luther wrote his book on the bondage of the will. And uh, you know the other Calvin and the other Reformation leaders went back to Augustine, assumed his position of inability, assumed his position of absolute sovereignty, and worked out their uh, great theological systems based, on, based upon these two ideas. And so we have, uh, we might represent these conclusions in terms of a grade that is to be climbed. Uh, and uh, we would therefore uh, represent Augustine as an impossible grade. Now we have the principle that it's easier to go down a hill than go up, isn't it? And that's what we're trying to illustrate. So we would illustrate uh, Augustine with an impossible angle. He says, man can't obey God. He's lost his ability to obey God. He is born a sinner uh, by causation, and, and he can sin uh, naturally, uh, but he can't obey God. So we represent him as an impossible angle. Plus is the virtuous climb, uh, minus is disobedience, as you noticed. We would represent Pelagius as a, a straight line. He said it's just as easy to go either direction. Uh, all you got to do is to make up your mind you're going to obey God. Now we know he's absolutely wrong, and we know that Augustine is absolutely, totally wrong. And so there was a moderating position that came to be quite uh, commonly accepted called semi-Pelagianism. And this we represent as an angle that is possible to climb, uh, but difficult. So we would say that the, the moderated position was that of a difficult angle to climb, but not an impossible one. And God settles all matter for it, doesn't he? When God commands all men everywhere to repent, this should settle the argument that man is able to repent, otherwise God is not truthful in what he tells us to do. So if we're going to be inductive researchers, like you have to do in engineering, like I had to wrestle with for a quarter of a century in engineering and other experiences too in the, in the engine field, if we're going to be inductive researchers, we've got to find the facts. Or there's the door, we don't need you, you can't contribute to our company. When God tells us we can do something, this settles the matter, we can do it. I have no idea how all these theological arguments have come into disputation in the church. Except I can't imagine a better excuse for sin than inability. If I can't help sinning, don't blame me. And so you not only have evolution, and its impact upon philosophy and psychology. You have theology coming in and asserting the same thing, basically. And so we have to moderate and think through our situation as to what is the actual truth in this matter. Uh, we have a chart here which we'll just begin to say a few things about. Here's the nature personality concept that I was taught in my theological training. And perhaps you were taught this too. 
This is the common opinion it seems to be in our evangelical circles in this age. Not in the cross-section of evangelical revivalism of 150 years ago. And that is very important to research into to see what had been held in times past. And so here we're supposed to be born with an entity called sin. Here's a beautiful baby now. And this beautiful baby has some kind of a substance, some kind of an it that's going to cause it to sin. And it has no capacity to obey God. And this is the concept back of the statement. Men are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. And so you can hear any time you want to. Imagine what one of our dear Bible teachers said just a few months ago. He said, sinful behavior is a natural outgrowth of the sinful nature received from Father Adam. Will you please tell me how I'm going to say before God I'm guilty of sin if all I'm doing is following a sinful nature which I've received. And so don't you see, we said in our last hour, if we're going to pray for revival, we need to have concept that the Spirit of God can stand back up. And the Holy Spirit has just one basic problem. To get me to say, I am guilty, I have no excuse. And if we come along with a grand excuse like this, we're working against the Holy Spirit, opposing His work. And so this is what the Lord sent me back to do as I was praying for revival in the 30s, exerting myself so deeply, well, do you have the message that I can stand back up? I was impressed with. And I said, no, it doesn't seem like I do. And so before we can even think of the grand move of God like we want, we have to have the message that will cooperate with God. We can't go out and say man can't help sinning. And when the Holy Spirit is trying to make us believe that we're guilty of sin, how can I ever feel I'm guilty in my intelligence? if I can't help but do what I'm doing. And so here was the idea of Augustine. Uh, he had some idea that we're not complete in our personality. We've mentioned a little bit about this coming from Aristotle, the, the higher concept of pure thought. They thought, and, and uh, the, some of the early philosophical leaders uh, brought this into a trichotomy idea. And so here they would conceive that man is not born in a condition that he was originally. He's lost something. And so here we have the idea of an it that causes all the difficulty. Here they use the word old man. Really, the old man is a old way of living. It's not an it. It's not an entity. It's a manner of life. And they conceive that man is really soul and body, and he can't obey God. He can't even be subject to influences. And if any salvation is going to happen, of course, it has to be all of God. And so here we have this thing causing the will to act, which directs the mind to think and the emotions to experience a particular course of life. As we will come back when we study regeneration, the concept of regeneration is to receive something new, which people think they actually carry around with them. They actually conceive that the new birth is something new. They actually have it. They're carrying it around. It's an entity. It's a fixed thing somewhere in the personality. So we're not supposed to have an argument in our being all the time. We're supposed to have two it's that are trying to argue for supremacy. And I worked so hard in the 30s, my friends, trying to put together an understandable psychology in all of this. Where do I come in between these causes? And I was having some great difficulty and a great mass of study and words and all of this. And this led me, as I say, to, to reevaluate what the Scripture has to say about personality, to see whether it's a more simple concept that we can conceive of as we face our situation. And so here is a value, here's a matter we've got to work with. We have one of our early Greek scholars, Moses Stewart, 1835. In the midst of this great New England revival, he said, whatever may be the degradation into which we are now born, we are still born moral agents, free agents, with faculties to do good, yea, all the faculties that are needed. Notice, we don't need any new faculties. We don't need any new equipment. We have uh, involved ourselves into a situation. Uh, James Fairchild, who followed Finney as professor at Oberlin, was one of the early students and a professor for 60 years there. He says, nor can we accept the idea that men lost their free agency in Adam or their power to fulfill obligation. Losing free agency, they would cease to be moral agents. Losing their power to fulfill obligation they would be under no longer obligation. In this case, they must lose their power to sin as well as their power to be righteous. 
And so this brings out uh, a, just a brief mention now on, on what we have at the end of this section. And uh, you remember that little chart we have on moral responsibility, uh, the chart where the man is trying to smash the law. And here's the conclusion of the great revivals of New England, the northeastern part of America, which extended into the Congregational Church, uh, the, the, a large part of the Presbyterian Church, uh, several groups of Baptists, uh, Methodists, other groups that were, were awakened to great spiritual power. And this is written by the leading professor opposing these concepts. So this leading professor, a tremendous scholar, and he did say things right. And he said, this is the, these are the conclusions of this great revival movement, which he would have no part in. And so here are three very, very important things that are so immensely valuable in putting together the whole sphere of theology as far as our relation to God, the process of salvation, the nature of sanctification, all of these things all related, it seems to me, over these simple concepts. And when I got a hold of these, then there started to be a formation of a whole system that is beautifully and lovely uh, uh, understandable. So all sin consists in sinning. This is immensely important. God is not concerned with what we're born with. He's not concerned with its of any kind. He's concerned with what I'm doing with my personality. Supposing we have one of these large automobiles on the curbstone here, and we got our hood open, and underneath the hood is a 500-horsepower engine. And an officer comes along and says, Sir, you're under arrest. You look him in the face, you say, Why am I under arrest? You're under arrest for having a 500-horsepower engine under your hood. You look at him in the face and say, Well, sir, you have been engaged to regulate what I do with my engine. It's no concern of you how, how many horsepowers I have. If I have 500 and only use 100, that's your concern. In other words, you're concerned with what I do with my vehicle. And this seems to be the beautiful picture of the Scripture. God is concerned with what we do with ourselves and the enlightenment we have. And of course, the, you remember Jesus said, He that knows much and rejects much shall be beaten with many stripes, and he that knows little and knows little and, and uh, disobeys shall have a different evaluation. So God is concerned with what we're doing with ourselves, and this becomes immensely important in the concept of the whole matter of salvation, sanctification, the whole victorious life, the whole idea of stability. All of these things come into this matter. This is immensely important. I've looked for this concept in research in very, very many different groupings and revivals. The second thing, the power to the contrary is essential to free agency. If we can't disobey, neither can we obey. If we can't obey, neither can we disobey. Now these were heralded up and down. This is not something happened in a corner. These are concepts that were heralded up and down to such an extent that the theological leadership of the opposite opinion uh, would come out in a, in a book here explaining this situation. Another thing, ability limits responsibility. We can't be responsible for any more than we're able to do. These are immensely important things. And you must think about them through your theological thinking to see uh, which is the concept God would have us to have. And what are the evaluations? So now let us get back to try to summarize some of these, these uh, ideas here. And uh, we try to gather together. Now you have in this little outline, uh, an outline of what you have in paragraph form in your notes, you, you may observe. And this will be available here if you want to outline your own text a little better. And so here, let us look at the, at, at the first paragraph there and uh, see what we can learn about Paul's conflict here in Romans 7. We have referred to the sad fact in Genesis 3.22 that man now knew evil as well as good. We've talked about the fatigue damage of personality and when we allow our emotions to hold sway, we know evil. 
and this damages our whole personality. So depravity does not have to do with a part of us. And those who hold the, the entity concept think of depravity as a little segment of personality. They think they have a bad part and a good part, and most of them are good, they think, but they admit they have a bad part. And as I've said, they think the bad part has to do with the body. And when they die and leave the bad part behind, then suddenly they love God. They enjoy God here very much. Want to do just a little to get to heaven, they thought. And after they leave the bad part here, they think that the good part will suddenly enjoy God and enjoy holiness. Of course, Jesus totally eliminates this idea when he says that sin has nothing to do with the body. It's a matter of the heart. The poor body is merely the use of our own personality. And then we have the Satan's beachhead. Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. And of course the law of the devil is me first. And he'd also talked about the, the shepherds we were talked about. He said, there's two shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. With me it's truth first. With the false shepherd it's me first. And if I want to live me first, I'm of course in his camp. And where the idea came from that you can be a Christian and live in sin is just an immensity. This has been a development after the 325s, as we talked about, when Christianity became popular, and we can't have a too distinct a teaching here now. We've got to have something nice for people to think about. We read from Isaiah 30 how they also wanted that in their time. And so we all kinds of theological theories coming in, uh, which is called positional truth, that we have such a position uh, before Christ that's not altered by state or condition. And so here we have a whole beachhead built up, and, and uh, Paul talks about Satan's kingdom and domain in Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't he? And then let us take our Bibles and look at uh, Romans 7 a few minutes. We have a longer writing here available for you to read if you wish. Let's look at the sixth chapter. And in chapter 6, we see victory, do we not? And then we have in verse 14, for example, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. This is not, I think, referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring to the idea that you're not under regulation. You're rather under relationship. And since we're under this relationship, it's a very sweet and lovely thing, isn't it? We have uh, Paul's talking about being freed from sin. Verse 18, slaves of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? Slaves of righteousness. Quite different than Romans 7, isn't it? Then we have uh, verse 20, you were slaves of sin. Now you are free in regard to righteousness when we were this. Then what happened? We came related to Christ. What happened now in verse 22? Now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So here you have a slavery with God, don't you? We go into chapter 7. We have the same beautiful thing. We have the illustration of marriage. And we are to be related to Jesus, aren't we? And here we have the beautiful deliverance that comes about in this relationship to Jesus. In verse 6, now we have been released from the law. Having died to that which, which we were bound. We died to this in the relationship with Christ in his love and suffering, didn't we? And what's supposed to be the result that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter? We should be warm-hearted and excited about serving Jesus. Turn over to chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of the sin and death. Then we've read 3 and 4, indicating that the walk in the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of the principles of the Ten Commandments. And we saw that there couldn't be any relationship with God without coming to intelligence. And this is all God's trying to do in the Ten Commandments, to, to put his intelligence down in a few simple words and ideas. And then we go into this chapter some more. Uh, verse uh, 6, uh, we have one area of concentration. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And then we have the beautiful concept in the next verses, how uh, we have this relationship with Jesus and and we have the victory through the indwelling Holy Spirit, do we not? And uh, so we go on to, to verse 13. If we're living according to the flesh or according to our sensitivities, according to our emotions, you shall die. There's no question about this here, is there? But if you through the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You through the Spirit, here's the secret, a spiritual victory, is it not? 
Then we have God's great helpfulness. Verse 14, you are being led of the Spirit of God. These are the sons of God. We have the beautiful witness of the Spirit in our hearts and lives, do we not? Then you go on through this chapter, and, and uh, Paul has great victory. Uh, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? And then he talks about the different struggles that we may be facing. Then he says, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Romans 6 and 8 are spiritual victories, aren't they? And so Romans 7 cannot be a spiritual uh, process of experience that we are supposed to have in our Christian life, uh, can it? And so this must have reference to the Apostle Paul uh, when he was awakened to his reality. Uh, you remember this great shaft of light came down from heaven and he was struck with blindness and, and we can be sure that he did some unthinkable thinking here in those three days of his blindness. And uh, this must be a point when he was really uh, arguing with his own supremacy because remember Saul had this, he had a pyramid, here's was his concept, he had a pyramid here, and Saul was at the top in great big letters. And he visualized other people looking up at Saul, the great multitude of religious people looking up at Saul. Isn't he great? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he profound? And here was his dream of himself, in other words. We know nothing of debauchery against Saul. You couldn't do this if you want to be respectable. So he had to choose certain emotions over others, didn't he? And now he sees Jesus down at the bottom. And Jesus I came to serve. I didn't come to be great. I didn't come to give you orders, he said. I came to love you. I came to serve you. I came to give myself for you. And my, you have Saul up here. You have Jesus down here. There's a battle going on. And Saul's not willing to, to move off his pedestal and come down where Jesus is, is he? And so this is what I see the conflict of, of Romans 7 either before Paul's conversion or after his conversion, before he learns the secret of spiritual victory. And sadly enough, we should have started our Christian life with clear instruction on how to have victory. But I wasn't started that way. I said, no, you, got to, you won't be always as happy as you are now. And we were happy in the Lord, praising the Lord as boys. Glory to God, Jesus had forgiven us and brought him. And he said, you won't always be as happy as you are now. Get ready for a big battle. Clench your fist and grit your teeth and get ready to struggle in battle and so on. Uh, and they never got the idea that we were to look away from Jesus. We're going to fight ourselves. Uh, if there was any argument, look to Jesus. This is the principle of victory, isn't it? And so it seems to take us a long time to learn this secret and to put it in practice. And so this, obviously, is a state of defeat. And, and Romans 7 is a state of defeat uh, uh, different from Romans 6 and 8, is it not? And so, obviously, it seems like Paul is, is uh, struggling with himself here and he's fully persuaded that Jesus is right and he's wrong. But he can't, get, he can't get his emotions to relax that he's going to be willing to do this. And he's built up this matter with such dynamic that it just carries him along. Uh, well, uh, you know what he says about the law. He said it is right, it is holy, the commandment is righteous and good, and so on. Then he makes an observation in verse 21, doesn't he? He said, I find them the principle... This is the word law. It's not the Ten Commandments. Paul is analyzing himself. And he says, I find a law of action. I find a rule of action. That when I would do good, evil is present with me. There is the dynamic of my emotions that wants to keep going in the way I have been going, he says. Or uh, something like this sketch. We have the, the red arrow representing a dynamic. And a, a wonderful illustration of this is the matter of inertia. You studied in your books of physics the idea of inertia. If you have a certain mass going a certain speed, it tends to keep on going the way it is going, doesn't it? And if it's going, to, you're going to stop the thing, you have to have a counteracting force to act against the inertia of the moving body. So Paul is finding out that his habits of life, his emotions are a mighty inertia which want to keep on going. In other words, he wants to keep on glorifying himself. He wants to keep on being admired. He wants to keep on his own buildup of immensity that he has had a dream for himself. And now he begins to think about repentance. And, and we interject this plate. And we might conceive of water flowing. You've seen fireman's holes beating against the surface. And we might conceive the, the concept of water flowing through a fireman's hose. And then you, you have an object before it. And there's a great force and a great splash that, that wants to push the object uh, along with it, does it not? So here's, Romans 7 is right here then. Paul says, I'm fully satisfied that God is right. 
I'm fully satisfied that the law is beautiful. I'm fully satisfied it is intelligent. This is what I ought to do. But I can't get my own consent to battle with this thing. And I just want to rush right on in my own emotions like I've been doing. And then he says, I'm having a struggle. I find a law. Uh, he finds a law, doesn't he, that Pelagius is wrong. He, this was long before this time, but here's the principle that uh, we have thought about, is it not? And so he sees it, that, that this is wrong. He's not on a level plane. When he wants to make a turn, uh, he finds out that, that he just can't do this uh, without a great struggle. So he, he sees, he observes a, a struggle here. And so he's fighting his own emotional habits then in his own strength. And he's finding out that this is a struggle, is he not? Then he comes to the point of desperation and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who's going to stop my uh, emotional pursuits? Who's going to help me with the habits of, of emotion that I have called? Oh, my. We've all developed these habits, haven't we? And, and when we are awakened that they're wrong, no matter what they might be, there are all kinds of habits we've developed, are they not? And when the Lord Jesus comes across our scope and we see this whole thing's got to end, Jesus got to be supreme, we can't be glorifying ourselves anymore. We can't be following our own selfish pursuits anymore. There's going to be a battle. And so here we have the situation coming. And then we learn the deliverance of sweet Jesus. And so 25 is a change over 24, is it not? And suddenly Paul looks to Jesus and he says, Thanks be to God. Everything gets relaxed then, doesn't it? And he looks to Jesus, uh, through Jesus Christ, my Lord, he said. And he says, well, now, you emotions, you can do what you please. We're just not going to follow you. You can do all the excitement you please. Go ahead. We're not going to follow you at all. we got a new guy. We're looking to Jesus, praise the Lord. And pretty soon you'll get tired of your actions and you'll see something better, praise the Lord. And so here's the beautiful thing God wants to do for us, is it not? Uh, we will think... Romans 8, 13, if ye through the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We tried our Christian life with the ye, didn't we? We tried this in our own struggle, and then uh, we became aware of what God had promised, and it is ye through the Spirit, is it not? And uh, here Paul learns this wonderful thing, and he's, he's, uh, we talk about Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, who has continually strengthened me. We think of 1 Peter 1, 5, kept by the power of God through faith, and so as we learn the secret of looking by faith to Jesus, we have victory, do we not? And this is the beautiful lesson which we all seem to need to learn in our inner experiences. And so we're so thankful, are we not, uh, so what God wants to do for us. We'll come back to this in a few moments here. Now let us gather together a few remarks from this page here. And uh, remember we have a comprehensive summary of the sources of temptation in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. We will remark upon this in another area. So here is the different, the threefold area of suggestion for us to leave our happy relation in Jesus and to go and follow our former emotions in some sense. So we say that depravity relates to that state of constitution and faculties by which it is easier to sin or gratify ourselves than to do what our enlightened mind declares be right and proper. Now we've talked about the different choices we make. It depends upon our constitution, our environment, our impressions of the serenity of God's truth and, and the fear of consequences to ourselves. So all of these come into the choice of our particular emotional gratification and must be, and you know how Jesus talked his most severe words to the religious leaders who were making religion the means of their selfishness. We read about that in Matthew 23, don't we? And there he says some of the most severe words he's ever uttered. These were religious people who were trying to increase their own worship by being great and being religious leaders. And so we have the whole scope of selfishness that we've all developed some kind of a, a great, we've generally had one area of, of greater concentration than others. We have other subordinate concentrations, but we've all developed some particular form. Uh, I've, I've worked with people who are so attached to objects that their, their halo of their life consisted in objects and, and color schemes and, and all of this. So we can get involved in all kinds of things, can't we? And we can get under, into emotional bondage and Jesus wants to deliver us from the whole thing and draw out our emotions to him in supremacy. 
uh, does he not? So we have simply developed our situation as we have. We have a few remarks here. We have our profound endowments by creation in the image of God. In other words, because we're so wonderful, we can do unthinkable damage to ourselves. Our corporation had a whole beautiful building housing the computers, which uh, they rented for millions and millions of dollars every year. And uh, I had no knowledge of the electrical mechanisms of all of this. Uh, but supposing you give me a, a long screwdriver of some kind and let me go into the uh, valuable collection of these valuable instruments and let me find every little hole I can find to push my screwdriver in, I'm sure I can do a million dollars worth of damage in just about five minutes. In other words, the damage equals the value of the equipment. And because we are so wonderful in our creation, we can do ourselves such unthinkable damage if we live wrongly and abuse ourselves. And so because we are such wonderful personalities, our thoughts and experiences all are active in every action. Here we have the different cycles of our life, do we not? And each cycle digs deeper. It's like running an automobile along a mud road in the springtime. And each time you run it, it gets deeper in its grooves. And each time it gets deeper, it gets rather difficult uh, to turn out of these grooves, does it not? And so we have formulated these deep grooves of habits uh, by a long process of, of uh, activity. Then we mentioned our bodies, too, have, re have reacted to our pursuit. And uh, they have partaken of this development. And uh, this hinders us from awakening and having a different situation. Then God gave us these beautiful environments of relationships of great intimacy, which, of course, he meant to be remarkably lovely and beautiful. How do you measure parental love, for example? How do you measure these lovely, delicate things God has given us? How do you measure true romance when two hearts want to be completely open to each other and share the values of life? And so you see the beautiful things God has created, and mankind has distorted these beautiful relationships in an unthinkable way, has he not? Then material objects were meant to be a blessing, but uh, were not meant to captivate us. We were to look at the different things of, uh, of objects of observation and relate ourselves to God, were we not, and to appreciate his great love and bounty for us. So we see so many beautiful things God had given us, but these very things are gateways to difficulty if we, dis if we distort their values. Now uh, we have a weakened and unbalanced physical condition uh, that we are born with. In other words, there's no such thing as perfect health. There's always some deficiency that begins with, and uh, no one of us begin life with absolute perfection. And so the, the, there's a depravity of body. There's a lack of perfection of our body. There's a lack of intensity of our minds. It's like it should be. There is, because of pain and disturbances, uh, a sensitivity to our emotions and a self-cultivation is there not? And that's what we're trying to develop here. Uh, and uh, so God does not say that we had the same opportunity of Adam and Eve before the fall. However, God has told us that we have adequate opportunity to obey Him and that no one in the whole moral universe is going to have any excuse for disobeying God after the time of maturity and perception has come to be existing. And so we have moral depravity, on the other hand, is a development. It is what we have chosen to do. Uh, we choose, as we've said, to concentrate in certain areas. And we develop these habits in life, habits of thought, habits of emotion, habits of will. And we, we just follow the ruts in which we have decided to live. And uh, these uh, get deeper and deeper, as we've indicated. And so we find ourselves in a situation but now here is the guiding thing of the whole observation. God comes along and says, we all commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul, Jesus talked about this, we'll see. Uh, Paul talked about this in, in, in his commission. God said, this is what you're committed to do. John the Baptist talked about this. And so here, as long as God tells man he can do something, this should determine what our opinions uh, should be, should they not. And so we see this development, and it's so wonderful to do historical study and to see the many wonderful earnest groups of Christians and the different revivals down through the centuries. 
they're not the great right written of, are they? Because, because they are trying to hide from persecution. And, uh, and then they're so busy doing what little they can for the Lord, they don't have time to sit down and write great dissertations. So in this kind of research, you kind of have to read between the lines, you know. But it's so exciting to see the, the, the great many leaders down through the centuries who have asserted the absolute ability of man to obey God and therefore his utter rebellion. These lights stand out as great de declaration. You have Melanchthon, for example, in Lutheranism. So in uh, 1535, the Augsburg Confession, which he was the principal author of, uh, he departs from the concepts of Luther here and says there are three elements in salvation. There's the Holy Spirit, there's the Word of God, and there's the human will, which either accepts or rejects the operation of the Spirit and the, and the, and the impact of the, of the gospel. So he asserts a great measure that rather influenced Lutheranism to modify considerably the opinion of the early movement. Then you have these different movements in northwestern Europe, as I mentioned, and then you have over into England in the 1600s and over into America, and we have so many precious movements that, uh, asserting the, the beautiful ability of, of man to obey God because God says so, but asserting that Pelagius was wrong and rather evaluating in terms of the semi-Pelagian view. You have Methodism in England, uh, keeping England from the revolution of France. Uh, in about 225 years ago, as you know, here's a group of students in Oxford that, that live, live such a devoted life that they get a nickname, Methodist, and so on. And you know what they went on to do in the name of Jesus. And so we have these great uh, things coming before us, do we not? Now we try to give you a summation on, on your page 5 how the matter of sin begins to be developed in our lives. And we've rather said this already, but we'll just uh, say a little more about it. So we say that there are hereditary physical tendencies which tend towards softness and self-sympathy beginning early in life. We notice from our dear children that uh, when the first cold comes along and some d discomfort uh, comes into their little existence, uh, there is a reaction here. And uh, we parents generally try to go out of our way to comfort them and to help them. And they form a sensitivity here early in life. And they say, my, this is kind of nice to be rocked and moved around and so on. And so here are some sensitivities that they're cultivating. The concept of softness now, there's no moral evaluation whatsoever. Merely what the, the little lives decide they like. And so on. then they, they connect up how to get repetitions of this, do they not? And here is an early development of sensitivity uh, through early life, in other words. There's no moral evaluation at all. It's simply a cultivation of softness. And we should be as wise as we can, shouldn't we, with our children to try to strike a balance between softness and intelligence. Uh, because we know that they've got to face life and, and we want to give them the best possible balance they can have uh, in life. Then uh, there are uh, the five senses we've talked about, uh, cultivated before moral accountability. And uh, here they learn certain ways to do things and, and uh, these are cultivations then think of the imitation that takes place. Think of the moral influences that enter into uh, to influence the child. And what a two-year-old child can pick up watching television is absolutely, totally frightening, is it not? And there's a sensitivity. Uh, you have a, one of the Roman church leaders said, give me a child until it is seven, and anybody can have them after that. So here we have in early life, and some have even said, that at three years old, you, the child has a formative uh, establishment of the way the child is going to live. And so it's immensely important, is it not? And here we have these developments of imitation. Then Peter talks about this, and, and the American Standard Bible certainly is not a good rendering here. It would give the idea, 1 Peter 1.18 we're talking about. And the authorized version is certainly much more accurate here. And here we have the concept of imitation, do we not? Uh, verse 18, know that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers. Now this word inherited might give the idea that you're born with something. But you study this verb here, it means to hand down or to receive by tradition or to be delivered by influence is the concept of the verb. 
And so this is what the authorized version tries to indicate. So here the early child begins to observe the, what the older people are doing in its observation and begins to form habits of life by imitation, does it not? And so we have this buildup then before immoral accountability. Now we don't know when this moral accountability comes. There's a great discussion about it. How uh, we know this, that God is loving and kind to the, to the children. One Bible teacher said there's going to be an awful lot of people in heaven from Africa. By which he meant that the many, many infants who died before accountability, of course, uh, will be saved in some fashion. We don't know what the development will be. But we have the concept of dear Jesus, do we not, that, that, that there is not a, a reconciliation, there's not a guilt of sin until there's moral accountability and evaluation of this. And we know that God is so sweet and Jesus was so sweet. And the child can have some tremendous blessings from God, which we not indicate as yet the new birth or the true uh, reconciliation. Uh, but God is just so good to every child and, and every kind of thing that is possibly to be perceived. And uh, so we have a development in the child's mind. Uh, and uh, now comes the, the impact of moral accountability. I'm inclined to feel it's a little later than some may think. There has to be some kind of a perception. I think we can look back in our memories and see there were some little things in our childhood by which we began to feel that they were wrong. And here was an evidence of moral accountability. We were seeing certain things we may have done uh, without realization. And then there came a, a realization of guilt. And this was an indication, was it not, of moral accountability. But then there comes a time when the mind evaluates what is already going on now. Here are the habits of, of self-cultivation. Here are the habits of softness, anti-discipline. Remember, love is discipline. But we have in the child a cultivation of anti-discipline. And we must help the dear child to, to cultivate discipline in a wise and balanced way, must we not? And this is the greatest thing we can do for our children, of course. So here comes this time of moral accountability when everything changes. And God alone knows when this is, and I don't think we can lay in a year as to when it would be. And it's hard to even speculate, I suppose. It would be somewhere around 68 in my own thinking, and maybe a little later, it's hard to say. And I'm not sure that those of us who are raised in godly Christian homes and have the atmosphere of, of love and kindness, I'm not sure that we don't have a later awakening than some uh, children who have raised in the rough and rugged uh, tragedies of life and so on. However, there comes a point when the mind evaluates what's going on and here's the point where sin enters and the scripture makes a description. All of us have turned to our own way. Here then is where our habits of life are evaluated by the, by the will and here is where sin begins. And, uh, and so the scripture indicates this tremendous tragedy and uh, declares that every one of us have made this choice uh, to pursue our own selfishness. And so these are the considerations that I can find. We should just say another word about this chart here. As you notice this a little more carefully, we have here a point of birth, a slight angle. In other words, we're born with a physical sensitivity. There's no morality here. There, there's a tendency towards softness and toward cultivation, we have our little pains, our disturbances, we tend to react about it and have some sensitivity to ourself. And so we start our life on a little angle. However, God's word is the deciding factor of our abilities, is it not? Then the longer we keep on our selfish choice, the steeper this angle gets. And so this is why comparatively few are saved in old age who heard the gospel in their youth. Generally, those who are saved in older age are those who haven't heard the truth of God. Now, thus, we reinforce ourselves in our selfishness and we become less willing to have a self-discovery. However, again comes the scripture that no one builds such an angle that can't be climbed or God would have said so. And as long as God says and Jesus said we can do this, this settles the theological argument of ability, does it not? And so here with this angle never gets so great then, in other words, that man can't do what God says. 
Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. And Paul, too, in his commission to the Gentiles. Now, I love this part. As we have the experience with Jesus, praise God, and the love of the Spirit and the love of God shed around our hearts, I visualize this angle as going down. In other words, you see we've got the plus in the green here below the line. It becomes easier to obey God than to disobey. And as we go out and experience the love of Jesus, and the devil comes, say here, don't you think you ought to do it? Listen, what do you think I am, a crazy fool? Look what Jesus has done for me. Look what he met me. You think I'm going to listen to you? What did you give me when I did follow you? And so we form an attachment for dear Jesus. And we form a deep love for Jesus. And this love is a drawing power which makes it easier and easier day by day to obey our sweet Savior, doesn't it? Praise God for that. The law of habit works both ways. And really what we need to walk is said, it's so beautiful. I we think we can come to the point where we almost walk emotionally. By sensitivity with the Lord. This must be what the Scripture means. The Holy Spirit's working in us. The willing to do is good pleasure. What do we got to do? Work out our sensitivity. We don't take advantage of our dear Savior. Allow Him to have His lovely way with us. We have possibly taken more time than we should in this, but I think it's immensely important. And we must just summarize things in the rest of this chapter and continue it very briefly in our next lecture. Here we have the last section here, the tragedy of eternal punishment. And indeed, this is a grievous thing that God has found it necessary to do this, as we have said. And we should never talk about this without a pathos of our hearts and lives. Uh, we talk about some of the names that we read concerning this place. A state of death or separation from God. All these solemn words that we look down and read. And remember, Jesus said more about this than anyone else. And we can just be sure that his heart was very, very heavy and had tears when he would speak like this. He talked about being lost, lost. God created us to be a part of his kingdom, didn't he? To be a personality relating to him. And if we don't want to be this, then we're lost, according to God's plan. And we could just think of Jesus. He's the one that I come to do. I came to save the lost. I came to try to awaken people to think. Then I came to solve the problems so you could be blessed in reconciliation. So we have these sad descriptions. And remember that God is obligated, isn't he, as a moral governor, to deal with moral beings according to their guilt and responsibilities. We have names applied in this, under item 2. We have the place of torment with Jesus mentioned. We have the Old Testament Hebrew word Sheol, the equivalent Hades of the New Testament Greek word. This is not the final state of either the saved and the lost. In Old Testament times, it seems like the righteous went to one side of Sheol and Hades and the unbodied to the other. Jesus said, there's a great gulf fixed, you remember, and you can't go from one side to the other. This is a temporary abode of the departed. And Jesus gave us this story, didn't he, of the rich man and Lazarus. And we think that the righteous part of Sheol Hades was evacuated when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven because we're told now that we go to be with Christ, which is far better, and we know that he is not in this place called Sheol Hades, the righteous part of it. And so there must have been a great deliverance of some wonderful manner, must there not? 
We have one use of the word Tartarus on the world. It seems to be a group of spirit beings who were more guilty than some others. Then we have the word Jesus brought into existence called Gehenna or Hell. And we just go with our Savior as he mentioned this. Here was the dumping ground outside of Jerusalem. The most disagreeable place in the whole community, of course. The, the place where things went when they were no longer useful. We see Jesus walking along the road out of Jerusalem. He looks over to this place which was called Gehenna. And we can be sure the tears are coming down his face. He said, well, here are things that people can't use anymore. And God has to have a place for moral beings who don't want anything to do with him, who do not want to sit down and think things over and face reality. And so Jesus brought this into the picture. And there were two things that were typical of this place. There was the fire burning up and down as you have seen such places. Then there was the vermin who were along with this the fire and so on. And so he said some very solemn words, did he not? And we can be sure that he was filled with compassion when he said these things. So there is a great place where souls must go who do not want to think their way into a relation with God who do not want to awaken from their situation and see what is true and what is valuable. Now as you read through here, there was the word lake of fire, which is the final abode of the unsaved after the great uh, judgment throne evaluating character. And we are suggesting for your thinking, now don't jump at a conclusion here, because evangelical scholars seem to be about equally divided over the issue whether there is literal fire in hell or whether the fire is a figurative description. So you've got earnest biblical scholars on both sides probably equally divided over this matter. Some are very vigorous insisting that the fire of heaven is literal. But we have other thoughts coming in which would create some problems, it would seem, in that view. And so we have a Jesus said, I came to send fire on earth, didn't he? He wasn't talking about a physical fire. We have a John the Baptist preaching about tree and chaff, didn't he? And fire. Obviously, tree and chaff are figures. And, we, and therefore, it would seem that he was using fire as a figurative concept too. And so we have uh, Jesus using and John talking about uh, uh, the different situations. And Jesus uses fire and worms. If you're going to say that fire is literal, it would seem that vermin also would be literal. You have the concept of darkness. Darkness and fire are a contrast in reality. We have cut in pieces. We have the lake which burned with fire and brimstone. And so it would seem that if fire is literal, these other concepts also would be literal. And it seems like the idea to most of us, or I shouldn't use that possibly, but certainly many of us, and I have come to that conclusion too, as you observe, that uh, the fire is a spiritual torment that the unsaved shall enter into, and that God in His love has made a place of greater comfort than heaven would be. And God cannot bring rebellion and controversy into heaven. This would ruin the whole thing, would it not? And so he's created a place of confinement. And he doesn't have to punish anyone. We know the greatest punishment of this world is conscience. And how many people tried to flee from their conscience were never successful. And we all have things that we would like to undo, I'm sure. And so here we see that, that, that this must be the nature and we're suggesting for your thinking this great matter. And it would seem like a Satan and his angel spirits wouldn't be subject to literal fire. They're spiritual beings. And hell was made for them, we're told by Jesus. And uh, so it seems like as we put all these different things together, it has seemed to many scholars, and I, I've come to agree to that position, that here's a place of confinement 
that God has a great problem what he's going to do with the mass of individuals who don't want to rethink and find the serenity of intelligence. He's had to go to this dreadful measure uh, to solve the problem as to what he's going to do with the great mass of moral beings. And we should be very humble in our thoughts, shouldn't we not? 